0: you remember last week we started Romans chapter 12, and I told you that uh, that particular section, chapter 12, 13, 14, 15, and 16, really the last section in Romans, is probably the greatest section in all the Bible for you and for me as far as the facts of the Christian life. you remember I told you that when you apply the Bible to your life... Uh, We apply it three ways. There's a historical application to the Bible. That means there's history involved in it. There's a prophetic application, and that'll be the things in the future. But then there's also a practical application. The practical application will deal with your everyday life. And I took that last section, the practical application, and I told you that even that one breaks down into three aspects. When you look at your life from a practical standpoint, the Bible represents three things to you. We went through these last week. I'm going through them again quickly, just put a context to it so we can move on from where we left off last week. We talked about promises, how important they are in your life, the things that get you through. Many of you, uh, many of God's people are going through some rough times right now with the economy and the job situation and things like that and Sometimes uh, you go through tough times with your children as they grow up, especially when they hit the teenage years. Nothing will get you through better than the promises of the Word of God if you know how to use them. Then we talked about commandments, and the commandments we basically looked at (coughs) were the ones that are found in the New Testament that deal with uh, you and I loving God first and then loving other people as we love Him and love ourselves. But we talked about the last one, and that's the facts. The facts of the Christian life is the reality of the Christian life. One of the things that I know I've learned about myself, and I'm sure it's true uh, of every human being because we all have the same old nature, we don't like to deal with the reality of where we're really at in life. I firmly believe that everything out there in the world, and you're going to see this before we're done today, at least I hope you will. But everything out there in the world that you and I have to face exists for one reason. It's to get you to get out of the reality of who you really are with Christ. And I I believe that the facts of the Bible that we have in Romans, and I told you in this last section of Romans, uh, you don't don't have any promises. Uh, You don't have any history. You don't have any prophetic things. But what you do have are the facts of the Christian life that is really where the rubber meets the road. The facts will separate the real Christians from the ones <coughs> who live into the illusion that they're, they're walking with God and have a relationship with Him. You remember last week we started chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. We didn't get very far. Uh, we only got to verse 1. Well, we're not going to get much farther today into verse 2, but here's what I gave you last week. I said, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, Which is your reasonable service. And last week we talked about Paul beseeching the folks that he was writing to for them to present their bodies a living sacrifice. Not in the sense of doing it, but in the sense of understanding why we are to do it by realizing the sacrifice that Christ made for you and for me. You know what? The whole Christian life, ladies and gentlemen, I'm just telling you this, and this is the truth, this is the facts. Our whole Christian life and its its realness or its phoniness, its pretend or its reality. But at the end of the day, our Christian life and what we do for God simply comes down to the ability for you to understand what He did for you. Gratitude is something that the generation today (coughs) that is alive today doesn't understand. Thank you is not in our vocabulary. But when it comes to the Christian life, you rise and fall as a successful Christian or an unsuccessful Christian based on that simple concept of understanding what, you're, what God has done for you. We looked at four concepts last week. We looked at the reality of the Christian life through the facts is one, you becoming a living sacrifice. Two, we looked at the concept of holiness. Three, we looked at the concept of acceptability. We looked at the, four. we looked at the fact that the Bible looks at all of those things in light of what Christ did for you, and He calls you and I, making our bodies a living sacrifice, your reasonable service. Now, verse 2 starts out, and it says this, And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, Father... We thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We love you. We thank you, Father, for everything that you do for us. We thank you, Father, for the folks that you put into this church. We thank you, Lord, for uh, the uh, ones that love you and, and want to do what's right in your life. We thank you for the new, all the new ones that continually to come in that, that uh, try to put God in their life and work through the issues, and <clears throat> Lord, help us to help them. Help us to come to the point where we really understand that the Christian life is based on facts, not illusion. And Lord, we'll be careful today to give you the honor and the glory and the praise. And Lord, as I lay this out today, (coughs) I need to preach this uh, as I do every message, Lord. I need to preach it to me first. And Lord, uh, (coughs) I need to, uh, to bring this into my own life before I can bring it into somebody else's life. So help us today. Help us all to take from this what we need in our lives, and we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For the sake we ask it. Amen. Now, verse 2, starting out here, is a real bombshell. I mean, uh, it is the reality of our Christian life. He starts out by saying, and be not conformed to this world. Today, the average Christian, you know, he doesn't mind uh, doing something for the Lord Jesus Christ. The average Christian doesn't even mind coming to church as long as he doesn't or she doesn't have to be different from the world. That's the Christianity we live into today. Of course, the devil, of course, he feels the same way. He doesn't mind if you worship God on Sunday as long as you come back to his altar Monday through Saturday. And the whole concept of, of this thing of not being conformed to the world is the kicker that the child of God has to deal with. As far as I'm concerned, it is the single number one thing that we struggle with as a child of God. And uh, I've looked at, for 35 years, plus years, I've watched God's people in every scenario that you can imagine. I've had to help people in every scenario that they get into. And I want to tell you, based on all of those years of dealing with people, understanding a little bit about the Bible, and trying to put it all together to help people in their lives, I can guarantee you today... The number one problem you face and I face is the problem of trying to keep from being conformed to this world. And uh, the God has a plan for your life. We're going to look at that next week. The devil has a plan for your life. And the devil's plan is one of conforming you to the world. You know, as I, as I began to study uh, my Bible and I began to realize how important uh, all the aspects was, It was about 35 years ago in my life, maybe 30, (coughs) that I began to uh, uh, realize that the Bible was a broader scope than I I originally thought it was. And I think probably everybody goes through that. And I, I began to look at the Bible and I realized that if I was really going to attain my goal, and I can't speak for where you're at in your life and nor would I. But for me personally, when I got to the point where I saw that Christianity was real, I wanted to know the Bible. I wanted to know the Bible more than anything else in all of this world. Uh, there wasn't anything in this life that, that could, could, could run with it. And I like to do a lot of things. I mean, you know, you that know me, I'm not a, I'm not a I mean, I can be, I guess, sometimes, but I'm not basically a boring guy. I like, you know, somebody has a party, I'm in. I love being with people. I love doing things that are fun. And I'm not somebody who <coughs> locked myself away, you know, and, 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 like a monk in a monastery, you know, and, and I, I still enjoyed life, but the bottom line was there was nothing in life that I wanted more than to know the Bible. And I realized very quickly that I was going to have to make some decisions in my life about my study habits. I was not a very good student in school. I basically bribed my way through my, uh, uh, through my uh, graduation in high school uh, with my civics teacher and he needed something and I had it and I wasn't going to pass civics and that was the thing that was going to not let me pass and I just made a flat out deal with him. I just said to him, I said, what will it take for me to get a D in your class so I can go? And I told him I was going into the army <clears throat> and I told him my plans and I said, I'm not very good at civics and, I, and he knew I wasn't a goofy student, I was just not a good student. And Bob is goofy in some ways, but not to the place where I gave him any problems. And he basically said to me, if you can get this for me, I, you don't even have to show up for the final exam and you'll get your deed. I got it. I had to go through two congressmen and a senator, but I got it. And uh, so I passed. That, we laugh at that, and I look at that, and I think to myself, you know, uh, but the reality is, when I started to learn the Bible five, ten years down the line, I had to go back and re-educate myself about study habits that I didn't pick up in school. I was, not, I, I was not good in math. <clears throat> Thankfully, you don't have to do math in the Bible too much. <laughs> I was good in history. I was good in science. Gym was my favorite class, and I excelled in that. <laughs> but the bottom line is this. <clears throat> I had to go back and learn English. Because I realized that the Bible is built on the English language. And the key to understanding this book is understanding sentence structure, paragraph structures, and all of the little things that are in English composition. Now, I could have learned that in high school, but I didn't. So when I wanted to learn the Bible, I had to come to the reality that I did goof off in school, and now I had to pay the price by going back and buying the books again and teaching myself the things of English grammar. I also realized that to understand this book, I had to understand history. And I began to go back and I began to study history. I can say to you this morning on the authority of the Word of God, and God is my witness, I I have spent 35 years investigating my Bible, my Christian life, the line that I come from, God versus the devil, down through history. Because I recognized that that was absolutely key in me putting my Bible together. And I began to go through a study of history, some 30-plus years ago, and I can say this morning, based on the things that I've done, and I don't claim to know it all. I'm not telling you that so you'll think that I'm some expert on history. I'm telling you all that to set you up for the next thing I'm going to say to you. When I studied history and I studied the things that were going on, I found very quickly the mark that set apart the early biblical Christian and the early biblical church. I studied where the early Christians were persecuted. They were tortured. They were mutilated. They were murdered by the world. And they were, went through all of that. And when I began to see this, I, I, it began to take a form in my mind. When I began to see the persecutions, I read Fox's Book of Martyrs. We have it back in the bookstore. I read the great books that talk about the suffering and the persecution by the early church. By the world who did not understand this new thing called Christianity. And they were threatened by it. So they tried to wipe them out. They tried to kill them. They tortured them. They mutilated them. And when I came down to it, I found out, ladies and gentlemen, that they did all of that to them for one reason. You know the reason why the world did that to Christianity? It's only one reason. The reason why they did that to God's people in the early church came down that I found in my mind and my study for one reason. The early church would not conform. The early church would not conform. Pagan Rome ran the world. And in, in our studies, the early pagan Roman Empire in the first, second, and third century, they really represent the world system. Their whole system was built on that they lived for pleasure. If you would study the ancient Roman Empire before it turned religious, you would find that there were three main areas that, uh, that Rome was built on. The first one was, was, was gluttony. They lived for the pleasure of eating. Most people don't know this, but we think of orgies, we think of sexual orgies. They had food orgies. They're the ones that come up with the idea of what we call, and I'm not trying to be gross here, but the the concept of a vomitorium. You know what a vomitorium was? It was a place that when they went to a food orgy that they gorged themselves so much with food that they could not get another piece of food into them, but they lived for the pleasure of eating. So they had a special place where they went and induced them themselves to throw up, get rid of the food, for the one purpose, so they could go back and eat some more. Now that sounds ludicrous to you and me. The second thing that they had to deal with was the, was the sexual concept. And their sexual orgies and their sexual uh, uh, endeavors uh, went off the scale. Uh, we had a disease back in the 1800s and really back all through the uh, early time. And uh, it wasn't even, it wasn't even, uh, didn't even have a cure for it until uh, around the 1940s. It was syphilis. And the syphilis was called a venereal disease. The word venereal comes from the word Venus. Venus comes from the, is the Roman god of love. And syphilis, as we know it today, do you know why there was not a a cure for syphilis for so many hundreds of years? Because syphilis was not a disease that came about between a man and a woman. Syphilis came from the Roman Empire because of their sexual depravity of having sex with animals, in particular sheep. And the venereal disease, much like the AIDS disease today, wasn't formed between two human beings but the depravity of a human being having sexual relationship through bestiality uh, with an animal that the mixing of the two produced a strain and a disease that there was no cure for. Come from Rome. The third thing that was their, their, their pleasure in life was sports. Does anybody see any parallels here today? <clears throat> They had the Roman Colosseum. And that's where they went on Saturday and Sunday afternoon to watch the the, the football games. That's where they went to watch the gladiators. That's where they started out with the gladiators fighting animals. And then a little bit later on, when Christianity became a thorn in their flesh, uh, they put the gladiators up against God's people. So it was food, it was sex... And it was sports. And that is a picture of the world system today as we live in it. Pagan Rome, the early Christian, uh, before it became what we would call Christian Rome, 100 through 300 A.D., (coughs) they accused the true church of being atheists. Now, that sounds strange, doesn't it? Well, let me explain that concept to you. And this is why they persecuted them. The Romans had over 600 gods. They had a god for everything. And they, whatever they did, they worshiped the God. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Those are Roman gods. January, February, March, those are based on the Roman gods. See? They had a God for everything. And when they they would, would catch these Christians... They looked at the Christians because the Christians, they thought, were, 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 didn't have any, were in any comparison with them. Because the Christians only had one God. And you think that if you have 600 gods versus somebody who had one God in, in worldly thinking, more is better. And so when they looked at Christians, in fact, the word Christian means little Christ. You know why? Because they would say, where is your God? You see, the Romans could put their gods in statues. And if you want to see this in the Bible, look at Acts chapter 19. There in Acts chapter 19, we got an issue where Paul and those guys are preaching down in Ephesus. And they're making statues to the great goddess Diana. And, 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 it's, and they're making a lot of money off of it. Well, Paul's coming into town. And he's telling everybody that there are no gods made with hands and people are getting saved by the bucket loads and so they're not buying the little shrines. you know. You know, you see them. You see Mary buried in a half bathtub in people's yards. You hear the little song, you know, I don't care if it's dark and scary as long as I got my plastic Mary you know, stick it on the dashboard of my car, you know. I don't care if it rains or freezes as long as I got my statue of Jesus. I mean, you know how that thing goes. Well, the Christians only had one God. <coughs> and when asked by the Romans, pagan Romans, who were their gods, they talked about one. Now, I got to say this. They were, they, were, they were doing biblically and worshiping biblically like the Bible says in John chapter 4, verse 24. Because the Bible says that we that worship God, if we're Christians, we worship Him in spirit and truth. Now, they would say to the Roman Empire, well, I can't show you my God. The Roman Empire would put their gods on their God shelf. They would carry it around. They would put it here, put it there, much like we do. But the real Christians, they said, our God lives inside us. And so the Romans coined the phrase, oh, then, and your God is Christ? Yes, well, then, you're a little Christ, and in time... That's where the word Christian came from. The word Christian means in its root form, little Christ. Rome had over 600 gods. And of course, we find that they persecuted them. Why did they persecute them? Because pagan Rome is a picture of how the world will try to make God a part of all its ungodliness. And when the early Christians would not conform to the world system of Rome. They were persecuted. Now, if you know anything about history, you know about 300 A.D., somewhere in there, uh, pagan Rome finally becomes religious, and now we have Papal Rome. And with that, we have the start of the Roman Catholic Church. And that starts under Constantine around 325 A.D., and then moves all up down through history right up to the day we live in. And now Christians found themselves in the same problem. And this will be an example, not of the world, but it will be an example of religion without God. Because now they were faced with the Roman Catholic Church and where the pagan Roman Empire persecuted them because they would not accept their gods and they looked at them as atheistic because they only had one puny little god. Now the Roman Catholic Church persecutes them and I mean butchers them because of the fact that they won't conform to the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church. You can go down through history, and you don't have to get a book written by some uh, book about uh, Catholicism. You can go into the Catholic libraries and get you a Catholic encyclopedia that will list the massacres that were done on those people uh, down through history, because the Roman Catholic Church is proud of themselves because they looked at them as heretics. They wouldn't conform to baptizing their babies. They wouldn't conform to the infallibility of the Pope. They wouldn't conform to taking the sacraments or the Mass or taking the Eucharist. They wouldn't conform to baptism regeneration. And all down through history, all down through history, God's people have been unwilling to conform to this world religiously, or in a worldly sense, giving over to unsaved people. This is why we are called early on Anabaptist. We're called Anabaptist simply because, ladies and gentlemen, as Bible-believing Christians, faced with a world and a religious world, we, listen to me, we would not conform. The word sanctified means set apart. We are not to conform to this world, not by nature, but by a new nature that we got when we got saved. And this is why the Bible says we've been sanctified. Now, I said all that to say this. We're going to come through this here. Today, the modern church growth movement is based on one principle it's based on conformity and young pastors don't have a clue and don't understand this people will go to church today as long as they can keep their ties with the world this is why pastors won't preach hard today this is why they won't preach the truth because we live in a christian world that caters to people and not truth and the bible If you become a pastor, and you understand three basic principles today, you will build a great church. Now, unfortunately, I will never build a great church, because for the life of me, I don't know how to do these three things. And if I have any shortcomings as a pastor in the world today, it's my shortcoming of understanding how to do these three things. And maybe it was how I was raised and how I was taught. Well, Jimmy learned his lesson so he does not have to sit over there in that chair today because the water he brought today, he made sure it wasn't warm. He made sure if I didn't drink it for a while, it would never get warm because he put ice cubes in it. Jimmy, you once were a deacon and now you're an elder. I just upgraded you. We sell elder stripes over there in the thing and get them on your jackets this afternoon. You see, if you become a pastor today, and you can do these three things, you'll build a great church, a big church. The first thing you do is you've got to get your people to want a Bible. Everybody has to have a Bible. You can't think of church without a Bible. You know, going to church without your Bible is like going to get gas without taking your car. But if you, you, so the first thing you got to do as a pastor is you got to get them to have a Bible. But the next thing you do is don't put any pressure on them to read it. The second thing you have to do is you have to get them to want to come to church. You have to have them want a church. But you got to figure out the way to have a church, but not let that church put them any, under any kind of accountability system. And then the hardest one for me, I can't do the first two, but the hardest one for me is when you go to church, you got to have a sermon. You ever notice that how long I preach? Oh, you don't? Good. <clears throat> well, my method behind it is simply this. We don't have a Sunday night service. We just do. You're just too dumb to know it. I've just combined them on Sunday morning, say. So. I was in a church one time preaching, and they had a big, it had a big, you know, it had a big plaque out in the out in the auditorium, uh, uh, in the hallway, in the forum, and it had it had a listing of all the all the all the men who had died from that church in World War II, Korea, and Vietnam. And they had, this church had had given a lot of its sons. I mean, there were like thirty or forty people on it, and I was standing there looking at it, and a little bus kid came up to me, and he says. Uh, He says, Mr. He says, what's that? And I said, well, son, I said, that's all the people in this church that died in the service. He says, in the morning service or the evening service? (laughs) Is it that kid? Put him on the chair. They want a message, they want a sermon, but they don't want any conviction from it. Now, I'm, I'm just telling you, I, I can't do these things. But if you could learn how to do these things, you'll build a great church. You'll build a big church. Because people today, they, they, they want a Bible. Why? I'm telling you what. Christmas time, there'll be a thousand million Bibles bought. There's just the fact that nobody reads them. They want a church, but they don't want any accountability to that structure. And they want a sermon, but they don't want any conviction. Conformity. Conformity. And of course, we've lost the concept of the Bible warnings in the Bible about losing our landmarks. We go to church today and we don't even know what it's all about. You know what? 120 years ago, when you went to a Baptist church, the pastor got up and he tore your hide off. And some people got mad and didn't like us. So you know what they did? They went down to the Methodist church next week. And when he went to the Methodist church, that pastor got up and tore their hide off. You know, two of my favorite evangelists that would just tear the hide off of you down through the early 20s and the 30s were Methodist evangelists. Sam Jones, Bob Jones University, I mean, uh, Bob Jones Sr. from Bob Jones University, and Sam Jones. Two Methodists that would just tear the hide off of you. So you go to the Methodist church, and they'd blast you, and you get clobbered. And you'd get your nose bent in a joint so the next week you'd go to the Lutheran church. And you'd get clobbered there. And you didn't like it. So then you went to become a Presbyterian. And that bite would tear the hide off of you. So you'd get clobbered again. In other words, back then, 120 years ago, wherever you went, they were preaching the same thing. They may have had some variances in what they did, but the message was very clear, plain, and to the point. Today... If you don't like what you hear in one church, I guarantee you this. You can travel around in a a month's time and you will find exactly what you want to hear. I guarantee it. There's a church in California I saw, read an article on, of how that they, how uh, this guy method of starting churches. And this shows you where it's at. And you think that these are the liberal people. Hey, I want to tell you something. There's a lot of Baptist churches in this city and in this state that started out knowing better about the Bible, but because they wanted to reach people, they took things like Baptist off their name. Because Baptist was not popular. Baptist had a focus. Baptist had had a a mindset. And people didn't want to be associated with that hard-line, Bible-thumping, preaching Baptist church. So they take the word Baptist off because their goal is to reach people. Well, I've said this before, but I'll say it again just in case you forgot. My goal here is not to reach people. Though I want to reach people, that's not my goal. My goal here is to tell you the truth about what God said. Though I should have known early on that I would have been a failure in the ministry. Because when I was still young, and after I preached just two sermons in the Canton Baptist Temple. My nemesis, who I had a man who, who loved the Bible, Mel Sabaka, and taught me the Bible. Then I had another man who was a pastor on the staff who didn't like the Bible, didn't like Mel, didn't like anything that Mel did, and all of their life they were at odds. And I kind of worked for both of them for a short period of time, not in a paid position, but one was in the music department and the other one was in the preaching side, and I, I, I worked with both of them. And he pulled me aside one day and he said this, he said, "Bobby said, I heard you preach last Sunday night. Now, I got to tell you, I'm going to be honest with you. This was a message that I preached some like 35, 36 years ago. I guarantee you it was rough. <laughs> I'm going to tell you right now. I guarantee you I said things back then I would not say now. <laughs> and he probably is right. He probably was shocked. I mean, I got a lot of people that liked it. But it was offensive to him. And I hadn't learned to have been refined yet whatever that means and he pulled me aside and he says "Bobby says i want to help you and i said well i appreciate it because i need all the help i can get and he says well he said i want you to i want to try to help you with your preaching he says someday you're probably going to go into the ministry and he said he says i want to be able to help you and he says and i said fine he said well let me just tell you he says you can't preach the way you preached last night and be successful he says, if you continue and don't change your method and style of preaching, he says, you're never going to get the results you've got to get to be successful in the ministry. And I looked at him and I, and I, at that early age, and I wasn't being disrespectful, but I had already decided where I was. And I looked back at him and I said, you know what? I really appreciate that, but let, maybe you better understand something. Now, I probably preached a bad message last night, and I probably was uncouth at all of those things because I was a young guy. But the bottom line is this. You need to understand that I'm not in the ministry to preach for results. But I am in the ministry to preach the truth. I believe if you preach the truth, God takes care of the results. I don't think my job as pastor is to deal with the results. My job as pastor is to preach the truth and let God take the truth, deal in your heart, and let the Holy Spirit of God produce the results. You know what's wrong today in churches? We got too many pastors that are manipulating the results. That's not my job. I have one job when I step into this pulpit. I work at it all week. I know some of you don't like my sermons. You think I'm too hard or you think I'm too this. You know what? You're lucky. You only got to hear it once. I start out on Monday morning by laying out my outline. I can only work for about, I start about 9.30 and I go to about 11. I can't stand it anymore. Tuesday, I frame out that outline. Add some more stuff to it. Wednesday I look at what I got and I and I reshape it and I refashion it I I put some more stuff in it my problem is not having material my problem is getting all the material I have if I laid it out the way I have it we'd be here till six so I got to work it in and cut it down and make it shape it and fit it to where it really works. And I come to the point where, you know, it's a situation where, you know, uh, I, uh, on, on Thursday, I, I work at it again. And on Friday, I put the finishing touches on it. Saturday, I look at it, brief it, put it to go, and ready to rock and roll. I got to deal with it five days. You got to deal with it one. So lighten up. Church in California sent on a questionnaire to the community. And they wanted to know, they were looking, they're going to build a church. And they wanted to know what the people were looking for in the church because they wanted to build a church that would be what the people wanted. Now, I'm just telling you, you cannot build a church like that. But in the world that we live in today, that's where we are at. You got new Bibles, so you got to get new music. We, we, we sing out of those red hymnals there. And if you look on the front, it says, the hymns of the faith. They're hymns that were built during the period of time when the Bible reigned on this planet, which we know it as the Philadelphian church age, and they're loaded with Bible doctrine. If you don't have a sermon sometime and you get called to preach, just pick one of the songs, you can almost preach it. But today we have in churches Christian rock groups. I do for the life of me don't know what a Christian rock group is. What is the difference between ungodly rock and Christian rock? I mean, I don't understand it because you talk about Jesus and you talk about God that that makes it okay. I, I I just I've been in some churches where I heard the person sing before the offertory, and if I had closed my eyes, I could have been just in a bar someplace and it could have just been the same thing. I don't understand how somebody can because of the fact that we put the word Christian on it that it makes it okay. I know a church in this city that has a jazz band. I was actually at a Bible conference a number of years ago. And on, on one of the nights, the, and and, this was a, and they had pastors from all over the country there. And a the guy got up in the pulpit. Uh, we get up and they had a reception down in the, in the fellowship thing. And I went down there and I stand in the back and a pastor get up and he said this. He says, you know what? He says, Kansas City is famous for two things. Barbecue and jazz. And he says, we've elected to give you the second tonight, and we have a Christian, a Christian jazz band going to play for you. I couldn't believe it. The next day, half the guys, the pastors were there, were gone. I don't, I don't understand it. If you knew where the word jazz came from and what it originally meant, if, I couldn't tell you in mixed company where that filthy word started from and why it was started and who started it. I know a church in this town's got a poker ministry. No, they do. There was a time when they set up three, five, four hundred tables for a Bible study. Now they set up 120 for a poker ministry. And they do that because they want to reach people. You know what? That would be really tough if you're dealing somebody with a gambling problem. I know pastors and churches that social drinking is acceptable. I know churches where you don't have to bring your Bible anymore because they put the screen up there on a screen and you don't have to open up your Bible. I know churches where you don't have to bring your offering anymore. They want your money so desperately and so bad they don't trust you to remember to put it in. They'll now do a direct drop deposit for you. I like ours play a lot better. Just throw your wallet in and we'll give it back to you with what we think you ought to have to get through the week. Some people don't like to get up on Sunday morning. So now you know what we'll do for you? We'll have church on Saturday night so you don't have to get up on Sunday morning. Some people don't want to go to church at all. So you know what we'll do? We'll put it on the TV screen so you can watch it in bed. Telling you. I'm telling you. I've seen churches that had interpretive dancing groups. Interpretive dancing. Man, that sounds spiritual. I've drove by churches where on the billboard it says traditional service, contemporary service, alternative service, and a progressive service. Now you know what all that means by the facts of Romans? It means you've conformed to the world. That's what it means. The church of Jesus Christ has become a flesh-exalting, man-pleasing, man-exalting religious theater, a country fair, a carnival, a three-ring circus that Barman and Bailey would be proud to run. We've went from the pulpit to the stool, and I don't mean the one in the bathroom, though it probably fits better. I've known churches that once that, do you know why, and I don't know if you know this or not, but do you know why this pulpit is in the middle here? If you go to a Presbyterian church or a Catholic church or a Lutheran church, the pulpit will be off to the side, and it'll be up. Do you know why that is? They elevate it because they want to put the, 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 the priest class over you, so they elevate the guy. And then it's off over here. In some churches, it's on this side. Some churches, it's on that side. In Baptist churches, for time and eternity, the pulpit was in the middle. Do you know why? Because it symbolized that in the Baptist church, the centrality of the Bible and its preaching was center stage. You know what we've done now? Taken the pulpit out. And the pastor sits on a stool with a sweater and a button-down collar shirt. (laughs) And he philosophies about your life. He sits on a little stool with his little paragon socks sticking out. With his little Italian made shoes. That some alligator paid a supreme sacrifice for. And he sits there and he looks down at the crowd and he talks. A lot like Joel Osteen. If you ever were in a locked building and couldn't get out and Joe Olstein is with you, take him using for a batter ram and break it and the door open with his head. And I guarantee you, you will never mess up his hair. <laughs> they talk about the good things. They talk about how good you are. They talk about how that all God wants for you is good. How you should be prosper in everything. They look at all the good in you and exemplify the good in you. And never take about one thing that Jeremiah talked about. That the heart of man was desperately wicked and despicable. But that's not what the world wants to hear. I know a church in Overland Park that when they have a, they have a praise band. Before they start things out. And it, it's, before it starts the lights are down. And lighting is everything now. Roy, can we do something with these? Anything. Maybe a red or a black. Or maybe just hook them up for some strobes. Anything. I saw lights like these in Walmart yesterday. These don't inspire anybody. Does anybody want to look at these lights, turn them off, turn them back on, and get saved? The best thing I can do is light versus darkness. But that doesn't work anymore. This church, the lights are down. The lights kind of come up around the back. And before the brand comes up to get you ready for worship, smoke comes out from under the deal. (laughs) The lights change. It's a theater. It's a theater. It's a theater. If I wasn't who I am and and didn't have my mindset, I, I, I wouldn't even get up here. I'd be so intimidated by all what's out there. I mean, look at me. I mean, I've seen some of these pastors that, that they, they look like they just stepped out of a parade. When they get up to preach, they look like they just stepped out of a parade. When I get up here to preach, I look like the parade stepped all over me. I would be intimidated. Concession stands in the lobby. Starbucks coffee. Now you can sit in the restaurant or the cafeteria of the church and eat pizza or McDonald's burgers while Sunday service is on the TV. You know, there's all kinds of ways to conform to this world. You and I can look like the world. You and I can think like the world. You and I can act like the world. You and I can talk like the world. You and I can pursue the things that the world pursues. You and I can follow the dictates of the world or the peer pressure of the world. You and I can, can react the way the world reacts to situations in life. You and I can love the things that the world loves and you and I can go to church just like the world. But the difference between true Bible Christianity and everything that's fake today is that those Christians, down through the history of Christianity, under no circumstances would they conform. And the Bible says, be not conformed to this world. Be not conformed to this world. Modern-day Christianity in America has no problem adjusting itself to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. 1 John 2, verse 16. And then God's people wonder why they have the struggles with life that they have. You know, I don't have time to get into this this morning, but I'll give you something to study out on your own sometime. <clears throat> You'll want to know the greatest passage in the Old Testament on a picture of the conforming of what we try to have to do to the world. It's in the book of Daniel. And Daniel chapter 1 in particular. Daniel chapter 1 shows you four steps to conforming. And I'm not going to get into this this morning because I've got some other things I want to talk about. But I want to give this to you. You're going to find that when Daniel and the boys were taken captive by Babylon, down into Babylon, they were. the Bible tells you they were the king's seed. It's a picture of you and me being born again and being of royal priesthood of the king's seed by being born again. And he takes them down into Babylon. Babylon's a picture of the world. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, will be a picture of the devil. Now, if you have a teenager or you raise kids, or you are out there in the world yourself, you can see these four things in their lives. I tell parents all the time when I try to help them with their kids that are having problems growing up, these are the four things you've got to deal with. And the first thing you're going to find when Nebuchadnezzar, type of the world system, got his hands on the children of Judah. Judah, these people are in the line of Christ, like you are spiritually. They were of the king's seed, they were chosen. Of the king seed. You know the first thing he does? Tried to get them to change their name. He tried to get them to change their name. God had given them for, given them boys names. Those names have to do with God. The Jehovah God. The first thing Nebuchadnezzar does is try to get them to change their names. And the names he gives them are the names of the gods of Babylon. Do you ever wonder why your teenager, when they hit 8 or 9 or 10 or 11 or 12, suddenly uh, they're good kids up to that point, and suddenly when they hit that age, they go bonkers? They have all kinds of issues, some more than others. He you ever put a pencil to it and did the math? You know what's going on in their bodies? You know what's taking place in the world they're living in? I'll tell you in a simple form what's happening. The devil is trying to change who they are, and they're being changed by the crowd that they're hanging with. The devil wants to change their name. Second thing you find in that great chapter that the Bible says that Nebuchadnezzar had a daily portion for them. And every day you go to work. Not only does the devil want you and me to be somebody who we're not. See, he wants us to be a child of God. But the devil wants to change our name from Christian to worldly Joe. To worldly Mary. He wants to change our name from what God has for us to what he wants for us. And he does this through the second thing, and that is daily proportion. The Bible says that Nebuchadnezzar had a daily proportion for these king's seed children that he wanted them to eat. And it's the garbage of Babylon. It is the meat and the garbage that have been sacrificed and offered to all the gods in Babylon. And now God's children, he wants them to eat it. Third thing you find coming down through there is the music. They were under decree that when they heard the music, (coughs) Nebuchadnezzar's jazz band, Nebuchadnezzar's ragtime rock band, (coughs) they were under decree by Nebuchadnezzar when they heard the sound of music. The hills are alive. Oh, excuse me, I got carried (laughs) away. When they heard the sound of music, they were to bow down and worship. Music is always designed for your worship. It feeds your soul and it feeds your spirit. And when you take good, godly music that contains good, godly Bible doctrines and feed it to your soul, it strengthens you when you take the garbage of this world, Christian world, and put it into your life. You look at some of those guys on those photo jackets and some of those girls, you couldn't tell them from the unsaved world. You know why? Because there is no difference from them, that's why. The next thing he comes down here and he says the fourth thing that he wants to give them the learning in the tongue of the Chaldean. He wants to get them to talk like the world and to think like the world. Now today that's modern day America. Instead of demanding that the lost sinner when he gets saved leave this world through repentance and a separated life. We now drag Jesus Christ down to the world level and adorn him in the clothing of this old filthy world so he'll be acceptable and appealing to the, the people in the world. I'm going to tell you something. The day of the big megachurch is gone. It's dead. I mean, churches of eight or 900 or beyond, the only way you can get that today in the world that we live in, if you know anything about the Bible, it's to conform and to compromise the truth so you'll get people to come so you can build a crowd. Let me tell you something. I don't know a lot about things in life, but I do know churches. I know pastors. I know the ministry. I know the Bible. I've been in it for almost 40 years of my life. I've watched this church concept in Christianity in America. I watched it die, and then I watched it go on a life support system. And the only thing that keeps them, you take the stained glasses, you take the smoke, you take the music, you take the praise band, you take all the frills out and have nothing left, you got nothing it's on life support. It's being kept alive by the programs. When this church ought to be alive because of the living book that lives inside you. This is what the church cannot do. It, can, it was never designed to do. This church was never designed to appeal to your flesh. When you leave here after Sunday morning, you ought to be one of two, th- you ought to be, you ought to be two things. You ought to be content. If you got a relationship with God and you're growing and doing what God wants you to be, when you leave here on Sunday morning, no matter what is said, whether it's a hard message or an easy message. I learned in my life the great, the great, proverb, uh, great uh, in, in Proverbs, it says, he the love of the honeycomb, even the bitter things are Sweet. And you come to the point in your life when you leave here, you leave here content. You know why? Because the Bible says that godliness or contentment with godliness is great gain. You ought to leave here every Sunday, every Thursday night or whatever it is. You ought to leave here content on the fact that you've got what God has for you. You're a little bit closer, a little bit farther uh, into this thing, a little bit more in touch with God. But you ought to leave here content, but you never ought to leave here satisfied. Because you always want to go to the next level. Christian life is levels. It's like a staircase that gets you to the top. Here's how I look at it. Now, I got to put things in real simple form because I'm just a simple guy. Spiritually speaking, you know what our problem is today? My problem too. We all got cancer. Spiritually speaking, we all got cancer. We just don't know it. The cancer of sin what I'm talking about. You know, if you deal with people in the ministry, I deal with, you know, you ever wonder why Jesus was called the great physician? You probably think he was called a great f- physician because he healed people. Well, that's not the whole thing. You know that, that as a Christian, part of your job is to be a spiritual physician. You go have a baby, you go to the hospital, and at that hospital, there'll be an attending physician that delivers that baby. You know you ought to be a spiritual physician and your job ought to be to be able to deliver spiritual babies. You ought to be able to win people to Christ. You go to the doctor. You went to your doctor and you died to your doctor, I don't feel good. I got a bad cough. I got a bad sore throat. I'm not sure what it is. I may have the flu or it may be a sinus infection. He'll ask you some questions. He'll check your nose, check your ears. And then you know what he does? He makes a diagnosis. Well, I don't think you know. And I know it's gross. You look at the phlegm that you're putting up. If it's if it's, if it's clear, that tells him something. If it's if it's green, that tells him something. If it's chunky, <laughs> that tells him something. See, I know, I know, I know. Excuse me, just a minute. <laughs> Here we go. <clears throat> and he looks at it. It tells him something. And based on what he he finds out from asking you and examining you, do you know what he does? He gives you a prescription. Now, you have a choice. When I was a young guy, I, 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 you know, I'm like most young guys. I'd go to the doctor and I'd be sick. I remember one time I had, to, I had, to, I had strep throat for, for 10 years. <laughs> it seemed like 10 years. But you know why I did? Because I'd go to the doctor. He'd say he got strep throat. He put me on medicine. I'd take the medicine until I started to feel better. Then i quit taking the medicine. Then I'd get strep throat again. I did that three times before I figured it out. Take all the medicine. No, I've come a long way in my life. Today, you know, I've learned this. Sometimes, you know, you, don't, you get a sinus infection, and I get about two a year, <coughs> and you get you get sick. What I used to do is wait for about four or five days to see if I could kick it, and then wind up going to the doctor. Well, that's stupid. Now, I just, when I don't feel good the first day or two, I just go to the doctor. Why be miserable four or five days, then go get the medicine, when you can go four or five days ahead and save yourself all the pain and get over it, see? But that comes with that comes with growing up a little bit, I guess. But I look at it this way. <coughs> You know what? We all got cancer. Spiritually speaking, we have cancer. Cancer is a terrible disease. It's a terrible disease. You know, the number one issue in our world today is health care. We want to get health care for everybody. And I'm all for that. But I'll tell you what's lacking today with God's people is a spiritual health care. Because we all got cancer. We just don't know it. We just don't know it, and uh, you know what? The, you're going to find that, like a cancer, while you sleep. I mean, cancer is a terrible thing. I mean, you got prostate cancer, you got lung cancer, you got breast cancer, you got colon cancer. I I, I know when I turned uh, when I when I and, uh, and when I turned uh, um, fifty, I went and had a physical. And my doctor said, you know what, you're at that age now, we need to check your prostate and we need to have some blood work done. And my, my PSA come back really high. Because normally your PSA is supposed to be like one or two, mine was nine. And he goes, whoa. So he sent me to a guy that dealt with that kind of issues. And he took, he took it and it was, it was like eight. And he said, well, what we got to do now is we got to have a biopsy. So you go through all of that. And he came to the conclusion that I, which I already knew. He says, well, I don't know what to tell you. He said, you're fine. He says, you know what? In, in dealing with this, he says, there's some guys that just run a little hotter than most guys. <laughs> and I said, that would be me. <laughs> and so I, I go, but I go back every year. For a while, I went every six months. I told him, I said, you know what? I may die of something, but it ain't going to be prostate cancer. I go, every, I go every year now. I've had two biopsies. I know him by his first name. We, we walked in and he said how's your church going I'm not a stranger to him because I'm telling you what I may die of something but I ain't dying of prostate cancer but you know how you die of prostate cancer because it's so slow you don't know you have it while you're asleep it's killing you you're dying four years before you're dead and you don't do anything about it. You don't feel bad. You feel good. It's when you get the symptoms and you go in and you actually find you have it that it's too late. Most cancers that way. And I'm going to tell you this, folks. You and I, spiritually speaking, have cancer. And unless you have a regular health assessment. And here's how it works. When you got cancer, they give you radiation treatments. Now radiation treatment doesn't cure cancer itself. But what it does it puts the cancer in many cases in a dormant state. But you always have the risk. You can't get your radiation treatment and say, "Well, I'm cured. I'm never coming back to see you again." No, 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 no. You have to be checked on a regular basis to see if that cancer still lies dormant. It's called health assessment. And I'm going to tell you something right now. Everybody in here, we're talking about conforming to the world. That's our number one problem. Let me tell you, that problem of conforming to the world is like a cancer. It will be slow in your body. It will eat, take your flesh one piece at a time. You won't know it till it's too late, and then you're out of fellowship with God, and you're messed up. You know what you need? Do you know what you need? Do you know what I need as a child of God who have spiritual cancer? I, you need radiation treatments. And we pass them out here on Sunday morning and Thursday night. You come in and get your treatment. It doesn't cure your sinfulness of cancer, but it prolongs your life till your new body gets here. And our biggest problem is conforming. Psalms 1 says, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in this law doth he meditate day and night. Here's how it works. This is one of the greatest psalms anywhere in the Bible on conforming or not conforming. Now, let's talk about our walk with God very quickly. And we have an illusion about our walk with God. We all have it. Because we don't deal with the reality. We don't deal with the facts. The reality is this. If you and I have a walk with God. If you and I have a walk with God. I want to tell you a fact. It's going to be on his terms. And not ours. It's not going to be on my terms. It's going to be on his terms. It's just that simple. And one of the facts is. That when you come to the point where you walk with God, two great examples in the Bible, Enoch and Noah. Only two men in the Bible that the Bible says they walk with God. Two great examples of what it takes. And both of them are pictures, as we saw in Institute class yesterday, both of them are pictures of the day and age that we live in. And then he says this in verse 1. He says... uh, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. Let me just say this. And here's another fact. When you stop walking with God, you stop taking God's counsel. And then you start getting your counsel from the world or something else. And the downward progression begins. And I want you to know another fact. You get, I get, we get our counsel from who we're walking with. And another fact is you can't walk with God and the world at the same time. Amos three three says. How can two walk together except they be agreed? That's a fact. Another fact is you can't walk with God. And get your counsel from the world. And you can't walk with the world. And get your counsel from God. Then the second part of that verse. He comes down through there. And he says. Blessed is the man that walketh not on the counsel of the ungodly. Nor standeth the way of sinners. He says, walketh an account of the ungodly, nor stand in the way of sinners. The progress starts where you stop walking with God, you start walking with the ungodly, and now you stop walking and you're standing with them and you're just one of the crowd. You want a good word study in the Bible? Take the word way. One of the greatest simple little studies you ever take in the Bible. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. John chapter 14. One of the greatest verses back in Genesis chapter 24, I gave it to you yesterday in the Institute is Abraham and Eleazar going out to look for a bride and it's a picture of your life journey. And you know what he said? He says, he said, he says there, he says, I being in the way, the Lord led. I being in the way, the Lord led. Psalm 119 verse 9 says, How shall a young man cleanse his way? Psalm 119 verse 14 says, Rejoice in the way of thy testimonies. Psalm 119 verse 27, Make me to understand the way of thy precepts. Psalms 119, verse 30 says, I have chosen the way of truth, O Lord. Psalms 119, verse 32 says, I will run the way of thy commandments. Proverbs 1, 6 says, the way of the ungodly shall perish. Proverbs 16, 25 says, there is a way which seemeth right unto men, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Proverbs 1, verse 19 says, the way of the wicked is darkness. Proverbs 19, 3 says, that, that the foolish is the man, a pervert of his way. And Proverbs one two says, Every way a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord pondereth the heart. You know, life is really simple. We like to make it complicated, but the truth of the matter is, life is simple. You're going to go one way or the other. Now, when you study that word and you lay it down and you break it down, you find out there's only two ways to go. You're either going to walk with him or you're going to conform yourself to the world and you're going to walk that way. And You can't separate the two out. They don't go together. Now, Let me tell you a great lesson in truth in life. Conforming to the world is never an overnight process. In all the years I've dealt with people, I've never seen them wake up on Monday loving the Lord and then wake up on Tuesday not loving the Lord. I've never seen it. There's always a process. There's always a process. There's always a process. It's like a cancer, very slow, very steady, one piece of your life at a time, very gradual, You don't get the health assessment. You don't come to get what you need. You don't grow in the word of God. You don't get the help that you need. And then one day you wake up and you're dead spiritually. But it did not start on Monday and then happen on Tuesday. Bible says, and this is a fact, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 11. Have no fellowship with the unfruitful workers of darkness. You know what the biggest problem that we have? We can't separate ourselves from the ungodly. We get the idea, well, I don't want to separate from my old friends because I want to win them to Christ. Well, that's a very noble cause, but you know what? They're probably going to wind up affecting you a lot more than you're going to affect them. If you really want to affect them, and I know most people can't get this, if you really want to affect them, the best thing you can do is divide from them because that's the best chance you've got. But we're not going to do that. We're not going to do it. You start hanging out with unsafe friends. You start playing the, the ball with them, or start doing going to movies with them, or start hanging out with them. And uh, pretty, pretty soon, it, you begin to, you, without you even knowing it, your sharpness goes. You begin to erode. You begin. It doesn't take much. It's very slow. We don't see it. We justify it it. We say, "Well, is there my friend, or there this, or there that?" And we try to justify what we do. But in time, it wears you down because the number one problem we have is conformity. I used an example of cancer. But something we can all identify with really helps you put it into a perspective. But there's another example in the Bible that shows the slow eroding process of the conformity of this world. And you don't have to turn back here. I'd rather just have you listen to this. Because you'll be so busy looking these up, and if you care about it, you'll get the tape and break it down. But this study is found in the book of Leviticus chapter 13 and 14. And it's the study and the incredible par- parallels of the disease of leprosy. You know, leprosy leprosy is a picture of sin in our lives. Do you know that? It's a picture of the process of, that conforms us to this world. And there's four facts that you need to understand about leprosy. First fact, you need to realize that leprosy is a type of sin. You know why it's a type of sin? Because when a man got leprosy, it left a mark on him. And sin leaves a mark on us. When a man got leprosy in the Old Testament, everybody saw it. Everybody knew it. He had a bright red or a white blotch spot on his body, and it got all over his body and all people had to do was take a look at him and say to him there's something different from when I saw him he's got leprosy and leprosy in the old testament is a picture of sin in your life and my life and when a man got it everybody knew it it left him a large spot and showed his sin and just as a man couldn't hide his leprosy you know what he had to do in the old testament When a man had leprosy, he was required by the law to walk around and yell out, unclean, unclean, unclean. Now, do you know what? There's things that you and I can fake. There's some things that you and I can fake. I'm probably the best faker in the world if I have to be. I fake being happy when I'm not. I fake being satisfied when I'm not. As a pastor, many times you have to fake being happy about things when you're not happy about things. You have to learn to do that. Because you have to learn, rule number one as a pastor, if you say everything you felt and thought, nobody ever come to hear you preach. So you just shut your mouth. But let me tell you one thing you cannot fake. You cannot fake a real relationship with Jesus Christ. You can fake coming to church and sitting here and, and say, oh, I love him. You can sing louder than anybody else. And everybody will say, boy, she loves him. She don't sing very well. <laughs> she loves him. But one thing you can't fake is your daily walk with him. And just like a leper, when he got leprosy, it left a mark on him that everybody saw. When you and I get out of fellowship with God, that leper had to walk through the street crying out, unclean, unclean. And when you and I get out of fellowship with God, when you and I get far away from God, that the, the, the sin in our life cries out wherever you go, I'm not right with God. No matter how big a Bible you buy, no matter how loud you sing, you can't fake the reality of a relationship with God. You just can't. I'll tell you the second fact about leprosy. Leprosy came about from prolonged uncleanliness. You didn't spread leprosy by a cough. You didn't spread leprosy by a kiss. Though their lips may come off when you kiss them. You didn't spread leprosy with a sneeze. Leprosy like sin is spread by filth and not washing. And the Bible says by washing of regeneration by the word. Type of sin. And it's spread through uncleanliness. If they washed daily and regularly, they wouldn't have gotten this terrible disease. And if you and I would wash ourselves daily in the light of the word of God, we would not ever fall out of the fellowship and the walk with God and conform to this world. But we won't do it. We won't simply won't do it. I'll tell you something else. The third thing about it. There's no known cure for it. It eats away at your body till you are dead. When you have leprosy, you have a slow death sentence. Just as conforming to this world will take over and destroy everything about you in time, one piece at a time, and then spiritually speaking, it will kill you. There's always a debate. I get it about every year at some point in the Bible study on Thursday night, and it's a good question. And it's a question that needs to be asked on a regular basis. A lot of movies out now about, and have been, about demonic things, you know, and people always ask the question, can a Christian be demon-possessed? And that's a great question. That's always been a perplexing question for me, because my my definition of possession uh, it, 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 uh, it, it, it confuses me. Because, you know, a saved person, you have the Holy Spirit of God living inside you. And your soul, we know, is sealed from the day of redemption. And I can tell you right now that if you're a seer this morning and you're saved, the devil cannot get your soul and possess your soul. You can't. Now, that may be some comfort to you and me. And that may satisfy the demands of a question can a christian be demon possessed but for me that only brings up another larger problem because i understand that the devil cannot get my soul if i'm a saved person but did you ever go through the bible and find out as a saved person what the devil can get that you have he can get your eyes he can get your hands he can get your thoughts he can get your imagination he can get your ears He can get your feet, he can get your mind, he can get your kids, he can get your heart, he can get everything about you except your soul, and he can certainly get your life, and he will get it one piece at a time as this leprosy slowly, like a cancer, slowly destroys your body. Fourth fact about leprosy. There was no known cure for it when you got it it was a death sentence ah but God made a provision there was a cure for it and the cure for it was a supernatural cure the person that had leprosy had to get to the high priest and do what the high priest told him to do and he could get clean of his leprosy we all got leprosy we all got a cancer And that leprosy and that cancer will eat away at your body by the things that you and I put into our world that are not conducive to Christianity. The situations, the circumstances, the people. The people we allow in our lives, the circumstances we allow in our lives will either help you or they will destroy you. And the longer you leave them in the life, the more certainly you're going to be destroyed. Because it'll act like a cancer. You may have the best motive in the world. You may not want to make the hard decision with all of the pain that comes in that you got to do it this way. But you know what? The longer you wait, the more radical things you got to do to fix the problem. And then there comes a time that no matter what you do, you're not going to fix it. The only way they could get free of leprosy was to go to the high priest. And that deal with that high priest said to be clean. The only way you can get free of your sin and your leprosy and get clean is to go to your high priest. If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God hath raised thee from the dead, thou shalt be saved. He'll make you clean. Verse chapter, chapter 1, verse 9 says, If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You go to your high priest and you get clean on a daily basis. Now watch this. Here it comes. Everything I said, I said to get you to this point. Our text today is Romans chapter 12, verse 2. And it says, and be not conformed to this world. In these two chapters, in Leviticus chapter 13 and 14, you have a picture of leprosy. I've already showed you that the job of the church is not to conform. I already showed you that the biggest problem I struggle with will be the biggest problem you would struggle with, and that'll be to keep from not conforming. Everything in this world is going to try to get you to conform. Everything in this world is going to try to get you to be like the world. Everything you see on TV, everything you see on the billboards, everything you watch in a movie, every person you see as a recording artist or somebody that you, uh, it, all, it all pulls to you toward the world. And I'm not somebody who says you've got to be a monk and lock yourself up, but I'm saying you've got to understand. We've talked about it over and over things. All things may be lawful, but not all things are expedient. It's like a cancer. It's like a leprosy. And it eats away at your flesh very slowly. And in time, it will destroy you. And unless you get a supernatural cure for it, there's nothing you're going to be able to do. You're already on your way to dying spiritually. Now, I want you to see something here, and I want to leave you with this. To me, this is the most sobering thing that I could ever think of. And though this is not obviously a, a message that we'd all love to hear today, it's certainly the facts that what we need to hear. And I've tried to put it into a stage where I didn't come down on you. I ran it through me. But I want to say in these three, two chapters here, Leviticus 13 and 14, you have three stages of leprosy. Leprosy went into three stages. And those three stages, and you better hear what I'm saying today, These three stages are what determine how long it went and whether a man could ever get out of it or a woman could ever get out of it once they got it. And you may not have listened to anything else I said today, but brother, you better look at this thing and put it into the concept of the process of your life and my life conforming to this world. I don't care how innocent it starts. I don't care what your motive or your justification is. You have to be careful because everything and everybody in this world will pull you to conform to this world. Chapter 13, verse 38 through 46. You don't have to look at it, but go home and mark it and put a little note out there by verse 38, and it says this, the leprosy, stage one, stage one, stage one, the leprosy in a man's flesh. That will translate into your life and into my life in a spiritual sense. When once we know that leprosy is a picture of sin, there's your fellowship being broken with God through no washing. There's your ceased walking with God, and you start taking counsel from the ungodly. You won't be, you won't be honest about your sin. You won't go to First John chapter 1, verse 9 and follow what the Bible says. You, and now you and I begin the process of rationalization, justification, Many times at this stage, when when the leprosy gets into our flesh and we don't want to deal with it, we start to blame it on somebody else. We start to look for someplace else to put the blame on because we don't want to deal with it ourselves. When leprosy begins to get into a man's flesh, out goes church, out goes Bible study, out goes the Bible, out goes your witness, out goes your prayer life, out goes God's counsel ceases in your life. And now you start to pick up your counsel from the world uh, or someplace else. I told you earlier, there's all kinds of ways to conform to this world. You can look like the world. You can think like the world. You can act like the world. You can talk like the world. You can pursue the things of the world. You can follow the peer pressure of the world. You can, you can, you can uh, react the way the world does. And you can look the way the world looks. And you can love the things the world loves. But the first stage of leprosy, it gets into your flesh. And this is where it begins to change in your life. This is where coming to church is not as exciting as it once was. This is where now you can find all kinds of reasons not to be on Thursday night Bible study. This is where you can now find reasons and justification where once you realized that you needed the radiation treatment, you needed what you got here, it set you up for your week, it gave you what you needed. Now suddenly in a slow process, now the things that you once loved and the things that were once vitally important to you are not as important. And it gets into your flesh. Stage two. Chapter 13, verse 47 through 59. Once the leprosy got into a man's flesh, then stage two was, it got into the man's garments. And now where when stage one set in, it affected your flesh, now the leprosy, the sin in our lives gets into our garments. And now we not only stop walking with God and walking with the world, now we start to look like the world. Now we start to wear the clothes of the world. Now we start to pick up the clothes that has all the worldly slogans and things on it. This is where we come to the place that we get out of so far out of out of line with God that we we go the way of the world. This is where we get the tattoos on your body, the piercing of your nose, your tongue, your eyebrows, your belly button. I, I was at a place the other day, and I couldn 't believe it. I saw this guy was in a pet store, and he should have been behind one of the cages. This guy's walking there in his earlobes. See my earlobes? They—I don't know how he did it. They have stretched down to here and came back up with a big rubber, looked like a shock absorber washer in it. He had taken his ears and stretched. He, try everybody. Uh, take your earlobe and pull on it. It hurts. Stretching it down till it's like this, with a piece of wood in it or rubber in it. It's an ornament. I don't understand that. I mean, if he'd have had freckles, he'd have looked like a beagle with big, long ears. I just watched some gal come in with a ring in her nose from here to here. Now, I'm a different generation. When I grew up, the only thing that had rings you pulled was a hand grenade. But I got to tell you, the temptation was more than there to walk over and pull this in a case of emergency. I don't understand it. I don't understand it. Why do you have to do that? Who are you trying to look like? Did Jesus do that? Why do we, why do we want to get the idea that, that we, we, and I'll tell you why. It goes back to what we said. Nebuchadnezzar wanted to get the change who they were. I met a guy, and, 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 and I like this kid. He's just the stupidest guy in the world. And you don't know who he is, so I'm just telling you. I've dealt with him more and more and more, and I hadn't seen him for years. And I bumped into him here a couple of years ago. And, you know, he hasn't gotten any smarter. This guy is a saved, I believe he's a saved kid. And he is going to, he is going to wind up with a seat of Christ, I mean, as naked as a jaybird. He, is, he just cannot give up the world. He just cannot. He is not strong enough. He, he just can't do it. And he just can't do what he's got to do. He just can't do what he's got to do. And he's the dumbest guy in the world. He is a follower. He's not a leader. And I saw him one time, and he had this, he had this tattoo that he had gotten. And it was, you know, and I, why is this deal that everybody's interested in Japanese tattoo stuff? And he had this Japanese tattoo thing all down on his ear and air. And he and I, and I hadn't had it. And I hadn't seen him for two or three years. And he had it. And I'm looking at it. And he's there. Yeah, man. He says, I got this tattoo. It's Japanese. And I said, what does it say? Oh, I don't know, but it's neat. I said, I speak Japanese. Do you want me to tell you what it says? Oh, yeah, man. What is it? It says, this guy is really stupid for getting this on his arm. And if you're a Japanese and you see this bozo, stay a long way from him because he's an idiot. That's, that's what it says. Oh, no, man, it doesn't say that. Why would you get something tattooed on your body that you don't know what it says? What if the tattoo guy had a bad day? What if you're the butt of a cruel joke? What if you would go to Japan as a missionary and then find out it says, I hate Japanese? Or if you think you're a tough Japanese bond, try me for a sigh. You might get your rear end kicked. Stupidity. Let me tell you something. Why? What, what are we trying to identify with? Why do we want to be part of some system? I'll tell you why. Because the first stage of leprosy gets into your flesh and the second stage gets into your garments. And here you're more concerned about your outward appearance than you are your inner appearance. Here you're more concerned about dressing to the world's standards. Here your life thing is, look at me. Don't look at the Christ in me, just look at me. And the leprosy will go from stage one where it gets into your flesh and it breaks your fellowship and then it gets into your garments. And you begin to wear the clothes and you begin to become everything that the world is. And oh, my dear friend, stage three, stage three, stage three in chapter 14, I don't know what to tell you. This Christian world is so absolutely out of its mind. It is so absolute, and I don't like the word stupid, but it is absolutely the dumbest, stupidest people on planet Earth. Leprosy gets into your flesh, and then leprosy, when you don't deal with it, and you don't do what's right, and you keep getting your counsel from the world and the people in the world, and you don't get back in the Bible and do what's right, it gets into your garments. And then, my friend, in chapter 14, verse 33, stage three is the leprosy gets into your home. Now you bring it home to your family. And it gets into your house. It affects your wife. It affects your kids. Your whole family gets infected. There's a great study in Joshua that goes along with this. And I don't have time to get into it this morning. But it's found in Joshua chapter 6 and Joshua chapter 7. And it is the sin of Achan. And the sin of Achan was that they fought the battle, and they were out fighting the battle. And God told them there are certain things that you cannot take as spoil. And you know what Achan did? He found a ba- oh I love it—he found a Babylonian garment, type of the world, and a wedge of gold, picture of the world. And he took those things, and he knew he wasn't supposed to have them, but he kept them. And you know what he did? He went home, and he went back, and he got into his tent. And he took his trench shovel and he dug a nice little hole and he buried the gold and he put it down in the garment and he covered it back up. And he knew that he had violated the very principles of Almighty God, but because of what he wanted to do, he took that spoils that he was not to take and he hid it and he covered it over and he camouflaged it and he made it look like the rest of the dirt. And then what he did then, he got up knowing that he was wrong, knowing what he had done, and he walked out of that tent, and he looked at his fellow soldiers, and he says, boy, boys, God was good today, wasn't it? Great battle. Boy, God is really good. He pretended that he was right with God when he wasn't. And everybody believed him, except God. There's five things that happened to Achan. And I don't have time to go through all five of them this morning. But the fifth one was. Because of what he did. His family got killed along with him. Leprosy will start in your flesh. It will get in your garments. And it will get in your home. Oswald J. Smith. Dead many years preached great sermons one of the greatest sermons i've ever heard him preach i heard him preach it five times before he died he might as well have died because he couldn't preach it today he might preach it here but he couldn't preach it in the churches he used to preach because, brother, I'll tell you what, I've watched him preach and the Holy Spirit of God come down through that message. And I've watched him clean out the pews, boy. I've watched there was so much snot and slime on the pulpit and an altar when the sin was over, you'd have to skate across. I've seen 200, 300 people coming down and getting their life right with God on one message. And the title of it was, Payday Day Payday Someday. Pay day, someday. That leprosy gets into your flesh. You don't deal with it. It gets into your garments. And you play the man. And you be like the world. And then it gets into your house. And your kids go to hell. Your your family dies. They all get messed up in the world. And the, 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 the progression of sin to the third and fourth generation begins to process in your life. And you just scratch your head. Payday someday. Somebody says crime doesn't pay. You're nuts. I had a preacher say one time, well, sin doesn't pay. You're crazy. The wages of sin is death. It pays. And there's coming a payday someday. Instead of doing what we need to do, we make the hard and make the hard choices. When it gets into your house, your family gets affected. I'm not going to say that families don't have issues just if you do what's right. Obviously, we do. But when you don't have the conviction of the understanding your walk with God, then you don't have what you need to fix it. When your attitude is in the world, when your life is slipping back to the world, when you're taking counsel from all the people out there who don't know what they're talking about. I don't know if you've heard it or not, but the big stick now about our church is the fact that we have no grace. A couple of bozo wannabes out there that could never build a church of their life depended on it. Calling people well your bob really knows the bible but bob doesn't have any grace and the church knows a lot of a lot of people in there name some of you uh, they know the bible they don't have any grace let me tell you how you know i got grace still maybe not a lot but i got some you know how you know i got grace because the next time you call me on the phone and your life is in a mess and you haven't done what's right But I still want to help you and your life is a disaster and I'll still pick up the pieces. You know how No, we got, we still have grace because I will never say to you on the phone. As much as I may think it, as much as I may want to, grace keeps me from saying it. I will help you. I will do whatever. I will be whatever. I will go through whatever you got to go through with you. But what I will never say to you is what I should say to you if I didn't have any grace. Bob, my life's in a mess. My kid's doing this. My husband's this. Or my wife's doing this. And I know, Lord, Bob, I haven't done what's right. And I've been a long way out. But I really need help. I want to do what's right. Oh, boo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo. I want to do now. Oh, I messed it up. I made such a mistake. I didn't go to Bible study. I quit doing this. Bob, Will you? what will you do? What will you do? I will never say to you, hey, listen to this. Payday someday. Day someday. That's a fact. You can't live your life without God and then skip payday. But when payday comes, no matter what, my job is to help you pick up the pieces. My job is to get you to the only one that can solve your leprosy problem. And it isn't Dr. Phil. It an Oprah. It's to get you not conformed to this world, but get you to where you need to be with God. And everything out there wants to pull you back from it. I've had people in my life that have gotten, come back and got right with God a hundred times. And you know what? The hundred and first time, you never have the place to be able to say, would you like to say it? Payday someday, click. But there's a payday coming. It comes in all of our lives. Nobody skips the great paymaster. Nobody does. Nobody does. And when it gets into your house, it gets into your family. And when it gets into your family, you've got some serious problems and some serious issues. And you think that you could just, you know, there was a time when you used to drink in bars. You don't drink in bars anymore. You know what you do? You just keep it in the refrigerator. There's times you used to go to parties and smoke dope. You don't do it anymore. You just walk the dog down the street and do it. Or you sneak down in the basement and do it. Do you ever check into an apartment or a, a hotel and you tell them that you want a, 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 smoke, a non-smoker's room? And when you get into the room, do you have to see a sign in there that says, this is not a non-smoker's room? No. The minute you walk in, it's, you smell it everywhere. You smell it everywhere. We got some people across the street that are not the nicest people in the world. And there's always gangs of kids out there. And they're, 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 they're scared to death of my big dog, Buddy. Because Buddy doesn't like him. And I, I'll take him out for a walk. And boy, he's pulling on the leash. He's going after him. And all they got to do. Sometimes they're all, they're all teenagers. They're all sitting and they all they smoke dope. You can smell it coming over to my house. You know. I, I went out the other day and Barb was staggering around. I said, "Honey, what you, you need to get in the house? You've been out here too long." She says, "Oh, but I like it." I said, "Get in the house." She says, "Watch, Robert, I can fly." I said, "Get in the house." I'm walking Buddy down the street. Buddy's just going at him, boy. He's—I mean, he's big dog, but 110 pounds. Now he just, he, he's just—he's going at him. and and the guy said what's that dog mean about and i said well that's a police dog he said what kind of dog i said a police dog as he's trained one guy said what's he barking at us for i said because he's trained to sniff out drugs you guys got any drugs over there oh no, no 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 we don't they'll be sitting around that driveway and i'll take buddy out and they'll all get up run right in the house The little white one, she's not an aggressor, little Daisy, but she's the smartest one. You know what I got her to do? I got her to carry a baseball bat in her mouth down the street. Is this not true? I'll walk out in the thing. She, she doesn't bark. She wants to be everybody's friend, so we got to put on a facade pr- that I got the two meanest dog. Because I don't want these guys breaking into to my house. So I got her. She carries a ball bat. And i walk out there, and she'll sit down, I'll put the ball bat in her mouth, and she'll walk down that street with a big old ball bat. I walked down here today, day, and, and the guy says, that dog carrying a ball bat. And I said, yeah, police dog. I said, I said, you know what? She's always on duty. That's her billy club. I, 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 I've forgotten how that fit into what I was saying this morning. Oh, I know. You ever go into a room and smell the smoke? Smell no, everywhere. It gets into your clothes. Remember when you were a kid coming home and your mom said, you've been smoking? You said, no. No, you smell like a pack of Marlboros, but you didn't smoke. No? It gets into your clothes. Did you ever, you know what, when I was in school and the coach was saying, you smoking? He'd say, no, I ain't smoking. he said, let me smell your fingers. You've been smoking. You've been smoking. <laughs> You know why? Because it gets into your hand. It gets into your flesh. It gets into your clothes. It gets into your house. My job? <laughs> to get you to the high priest to get it clean. I don't care how many times. Boy, I heard that old boy preach that message. Payday someday. I think John may have it on tape at home someplace. We got all them old preachers. Payday someday. Boy, he didn't cut him any slack. He didn't need to cut him any slack. He preached that message that your life of sin and doing what you want to do and you live your life the way you want and you run with the world and you do what you want to do and you think you got away with it and then he come down to that point. Payday someday. And when that leprosy goes through those stages and it gets into your flesh and you don't deal with it and that leprosy and a crow like a cancer gets into your clothes and you just go along with it and then that leprosy finally gets into your house and it affects your children and the bad choices and the bad decisions and the things that you've done in your life that you didn't deal with and should have done with and didn't stay growing and didn't make the hard choices and you should have done and you didn't do, now, my friend, they come home to roost and it's some payday someday. It's just that simple. But know for sure, we'll always be here to help you no matter where that is because that's what grace is all about. And all down through history, the mark of Bible Christianity And the Bible-believing child of God was simply one thing. He would not conform. They wouldn't be part of the religious stuff that was going on, and they won't be part of the worldly stuff that's going on. And we as God's people need to understand that no matter what happens today, we wonder why God's people have the problems they've got in their life. I'll tell you what, my friend. The Bible says that God and Moses had a relationship he spoke to God face to face like a man speaking to his brother. Let me just say something to God's people. And I know it's a world of technology today, but I want to tell you something. If you spent as much time in that Bible seeking out God's face as you do on MySpace, you'd have a revival in your life. Instead of sending all your emails, try a little knee-mail. You'll have a revival in your life. Can't get up like I did 20 years ago when I did that. When I was growing up, texting, texting, texting was getting into the book and taking a text of that Bible and laying it out. Things change. Times change. But the Bible never changes. And the facts never change. The facts never change. Now, next week, from the rest of this verse, I'll show you why, in reality, the facts, the process that 100% guarantees that you will never fall back into the world. I'm going to show you next week the process that God has put in here that if you want the victorious Christian life, no matter what your circumstances, no matter where you've been, no matter what situation you're in, no matter how bad it may look, I have never found any place in anybody's life, no matter what the situation was, that there wasn't something that could be done that would turn the event around. It may be a hard choice. It may be a choice that it, 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 it maybe you can't do, but there's never nothing that you can do. Every head bowed and every eye closed.